0: Thank you for listening to this lunchtime talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. In this live recording, the Art Gallery's Assistant Director, Artistic Programs, Lisa Slade, provides an introduction to recurring themes in the exhibition John Marwanjal, I Am the Old and the New. Welcome, everyone. For those who are just arriving, if I could ask you to stay, we've, we've created this very beautiful, well done Annika, we've created this very beautiful kind of classroom in the heart of Mimilgan, so if I could ask those who are arriving and grabbing stools now just to join the kind of core of this mass movement is what it feels like. Ghana Yatanga Yuandi, we meet on Ghana Country today for this lunchtime talk. My name is Lisa Slade and I am the Assistant Director of Artistic Programs here at the gallery. Thank you so much for joining us today. I imagine, I know we've got a number of our gallery guides in the room, and but I imagine that there are also some people. Is there anyone who's seeing the exhibition for the first time today? Hands up if you're seeing the exhibition for the first time. Wonderful. Welcome. Yolgamak, welcome to John Marwanjul, I am the old and the new. I thought what I would do, because there have been a number of public presentations, is kind of create my own pathway, if possible, through this exhibition. I will throw to questions at the end, but there probably won't be a lot of time or space for them. Last night, I was reacquainting myself with the publication, and there's a really wonderful... (laughs) Essay, where Murray Gard talks about how John Moonjel and we 'll talk we'll use his skin name, so I'll talk about John Mawanjul as Balang, how John Mowingje is often entertained by Baland that 's us non Guningu people, by baland 's attempt to pin down meaning, and there's a wonderful interchange between. These two lifelong, pretty much lifelong friends, Murray Gard, for those of you who were here over the weekend, will know that he's been working with John Mowenjaw since 1988. He was sent up as a schoolteacher. And I'd just like to kind of pay tribute to Murray because this exhibition would not have been possible without Murray Gard. That seems an absurd thing to say because this exhibition, of course, would not have been possible without John Mowengar, but it's Murray Gard who's been the interlocutor in bringing John Mowengar to us and to myriad audiences. So Murray Gard in 1988 went up to Mumega. Now, Mowengar is one of the important places or sites that is referenced through this exhibition. Mumega is also the place that we're paying tribute to up in the studio and along the cafe wall, that wonderful kind of water lily plant that you see there. I'm going to get distracted by looking at Karina and how great she is at this um, the Mumega bloom is a, a bloom that grows on the waterways and it has, it looks a bit like a lotus. It has a fruit that looks like a strawberry but tastes like a chilli and is delicious apparently. So um, Balang and Murrigard met in 1988, in Mumega. Murrigard was sent up through a kind of an assiduous enthusiasm around teaching non or teaching Aboriginal children English arrived only to realise that of course he was there to learn Guningu. Can you hear me okay? It's a little bit echoey isn't it? If you have any trouble hearing me just interject at any point. So Murray very quickly worked out that Guningu was the reason he was there but in learning a language you take on an epistemology or a science of knowing that belongs to that culture. And I think you adapt to a certain extent an ontology or a science of being that belongs to that culture. So there's this really beautiful exchange between Murray and Balang in the publication. And if you've seen them work together in the flesh, where they kind of laugh at or poke fun at a Balanda desire to pin down meaning. So when we get to questions... What I want you to do is to think about that because I think sometimes when we ask questions, we ask them as as one does from our own kind of worldview and framework in an attempt to pin down meaning, a meaning that for Balang and for Guningu is much more... My hand's trying to say the word. ..is much more fertile, is much more... Um, complex and is perhaps much more layered than we are convinced art history is to be. Although, I would argue, stepping away from my anthropology self into my art history self, that within every art history, there are similar complexities and ambiguities. So what have we got? We have an exhibition that is the result of about three and a half years of curatorial work, The exhibition began when uh, myself, Balang, Natasha Bullock and Lizanne McGregor met at the MCA about three and a half, four years ago uh, with Balang to talk about the idea of a show. At that point John Marwanjul had been the focus of two international exhibitions but due to the intervention in 2007 brought about by the Howard government his art practice had come to, largely come to a halt, his art practice had ceased to be the incessant inflorescence that had existed prior to the intervention. And the reason for that is a a simple and tragic economic outcome of the fact that if you don't fund outstations, if you change an economy on the ground, that impacts immediately on all aspects of culture. So John Marwanjoo was no longer able to make art on country in the way that he'd been supported to do so. I guess I would like you to think about what that means, the proliferation of that effect, because if Marwanjoo was no longer able to make art on country, it means that people were, in essence, no longer to the same extent able to perform ceremony on country, sing on country, interact, live on country in the way that they have for millennia. I'm not saying that everybody was moved into Maningrida, but there was certainly at that time, and it has continued to have reverberations, um, a, a massive impact on the daily lives of everyone living across, I would say, actually all Aboriginal people in Australia. Let's make that generalisation. I think it's safe to make. So when we met with Mawendul, uh he... I think he was at risk of being forgotten by the current generation of art students. I certainly, you know, I studied in the 1980s and he was someone that I was aware of. I was in, I finished my undergraduate degree, Well, I was actually kind of just finishing, coming towards the end of my undergraduate degree in 1988, which was the year in which the MCA opened and the year in which those, the two Barks, um, sorry, Nawara Mulmul, Nawara Mulmul, who is a lightning figure, a shooting star spirit. She's on the other side of this wall. She was acquired into their collection in 1988. So at that time, he was, he was a shooting star. It's an appropriate metaphor, actually. He was an incredible shooting star in terms of the world's appetite for art and the world's interest, particularly in Indigenous art. We, 25 years later, we felt that he was at risk of being forgotten, not remembered, not known. And whilst his work had more recently been the subject of international surveys, including the major RAC exhibition, there had not been a focus on his work since Hedy Perkins' Crossing Country exhibition. We, didn't, we had, of course, exhibited his work, the barks that we have in our collection here at the gallery, so I'm not suggesting that he was packed up and forgotten about in terms of collections, but there had not been the curatorial attention at a time where I think bark painting needed that curatorial attention. Now, keep in mind that it's as early as the 1990s that when Gabriella Pitzi puts forward John Marwanjul to be in the art fair, major international art fair, contemporary art fair. Her application is rejected by the art fair coordinators on the grounds that his work is folk art and lies outside of the idea of contemporary art. 1990s. So, to me, I I come back to that time and time again because I think it's a reminder of how much work there still is to be done in relaxing and radically rethinking some of these Ballander, Whitefeller categories and ideas around what constitutes contemporary art. I mean, we here in Adelaide have had very recent manifestations of that in talking about the idea for Lot 14 as Adelaide contemporary in some ways, we made the error of everyone's minds going to one thing when, they, when we think about contemporary art. But we are standing within a contemporary art exhibition and looking at the work of a contemporary artist now. That befuddles our balander thinking because for us, it's us meaning Western through Western thought, the idea of something being both ancestral and contemporary is a little bit hard to cope with. (laughs) This exhibition's premise is about making us all feel a little bit more comfortable with that idea. And it does so, hopefully, that's for you to decide in many ways, by presenting you with more than 160 works across 40 years of a career to show the patterns of change and continuity in Balang's work. John Marwanjul was included in one of the most controversial exhibitions in history <laughs> i think i can say that magicians of the earth it was curated by jean-hubert matan for the centre georges pompidou in the 1980s and nawara mulmul the shooting star figure around the corner i would have you all in that room today if we'd fit but i knew we wouldn't the nawara mulmul was made for that exhibition in commanding a piece of eucalyptus tetradonta that's almost two metres tall. Balang, in the 1980s, was cognizant of his position, an increasingly meteoric one, if you like, within an international art scene. So the other thing that this exhibition hopefully confounds is the idea that Aboriginal art is remote and hence not globally connected it is possible and I I would like to think this exhibition testifies that Aboriginal art can be at once remote and that's a it's kind of an interesting word in itself we could spend all day talking about that Um, and absolutely globally connected I you need to look no further than at Arnhem Land history to know about the patterns of connection Right now we're rehanging our Australian wing and you'll all come back in early December to see what we've done with the Australian collection in the Elder Wing. We sent those French paintings home and we've brought our own collection back in. And in Gallery 1, as has been customary for the last seven years or so, you will encounter the narrative of contact before European contact Contact that challenges a kind of colonial sovereignty that we like to assume that Balanda have. In some ways, Arnhem Land is one of the least remote places on the planet. <laughs> there are patterns of exchange that are evident in DNA, in language, uh, that are centuries old in Arnhem Land. So hopefully this exhibition does kind of encourage that type of rethinking. So let's look at what's going on here. This exhibition is bilingual, as most of you, all of you probably have realised by now. Importantly, it starts with Guningu. Guningu has not been imposed as a written language on the back of an English translation. Guningu as a language that is heard and made in the mouth is the priority here, it's then been translated for your Ballander purposes. When, almost two weeks ago, John Marwanjo's family arrived, Murraygaard, we all came through the exhibition prior to opening, and Murraygaard actually read the Gooningoo for the family. So the meaning was made in the mouth, And that meaning that's made in the mouth through speaking language and culture has a very important mnemonic function, the function of memory. Language holds that, but bark painting holds that too. And I guess I just want to meditate on this idea of the mnemonic function of bark painting for a moment. Because memory is a really interesting thing to consider in the context of works of art that are, that in fact hold memories themselves. When we talk about bark painting, sometimes we talk about the tree memory that's held within the bark painting. And even just glancing around you, for those of you who are new to the exhibition, you'll notice that there are varying states of physicality in these dolopo. Dolopo is the Gunungu word for bark painting. I almost want to use the word dolopo from here on in and not painting because in the Western convention, pretty recently, not traditionally, because in fact Western painting is tied to place and site. Western painting was always about architecture and space. But we kind of forgot that with the invention of oil painting. We started to make things that you could commodify and exchange and then we got this idea about painting as being two-dimensional. And that idea's been, pretty held, been held pretty tight, hasn't it, for about 500 years, 600 years? Dollopo, bark, is actually not only painting through that lens. We're really looking at sculptural works. We are certainly looking at works that hold a memory, and they hold a memory in lots of different ways. First of all, in the act of harvesting the eucalyptus tetradon to the stringy bark tree you are removing part of that tree in a way that enables the tree to also remember that it's still a tree and the tree remembers to grow. So the bark is only harvested in the wet season because the rates of growth in the wet season enable immediate recovery. Not because you can't do it at any other time, but because that is the opposite window in terms of the climate and deep environmental knowledge. You harvest the bark. You then attempt in a way to disrupt the memory of the tree. And you do that by flattening out the dollop. So the bark is laid down. It's flattened sometimes with weights. I've seen lots of different approaches to this. It's not homogenous. It's as diverse as bark painting itself. I've seen barks smoked standing up. I've seen them flattened down. I've seen all sorts of different ways of flattening the bark. These barks are smoked and flattened. The memory, in in a sense, is curtailed or controlled. And then the bark is prepared. First of all, by sanding down a stringy bark tree. And I know a lot of you would know Eucalyptus tetradonta, but even if you don't, and the word, you would imagine that the bark itself is, as the name suggests, quite stringy. So that requires some work to to, um, prepare the surface, so quite a lot of physical work to prepare the surface. Then the ground is applied, and as you exit the exhibition, if you're going towards the kind of lift area, you'll see a selection of the materials that John Marwondrell uses, and I'd encourage you, not all at once, way too many of you, but to take a moment to have a close look at those materials, because you'll see a number of things that I hope will be illuminating. One of them is the charcoal. So in the case of the ngalyod that's just here, This is a fairly recent work, it's from 2004, it's from a private collection. These works have come from all over the world, by the way, from private and public collections. In the case of this Ngalyod, the black ground is made here from charcoal. And that's um, an interesting point of comparison, I'm reminded of our collection of barks from the Asial expedition, the Australian and American scientific expedition into Arnhem Land that were collected in 1948. Many of those that were from Elko Island have a, a black ground and those works... Is, or is it Groot Island? I always get my two islands mixed up. It is Groot Island. Um, still carries its Balanda or, or kind of, you know, Germanic slash Dutch name. The, the black that you see in those is the, the mineral that's mined and still mined to this day. On that island. That's laid down, and then the colours are built up and layered. And the colours themselves carry the memory of place. They are, in fact, place. The yellow ochre, the tonal variation of orange through to red ochres, some of which are created just as we've, over history, we've burnt umber, we've burnt sienna to make colour. Those colours are burnt to make the larger colours, I mean, the darker colours. And then the white is the most sacred of all because it comes from very specific places and appears, as many of you would now know, in a series of kind of seams. It's like a, a kaolin or a clay. It's known as huntite is the mineral name, I believe. For balang, it is delek. And delek is the white that is not an ochre per se, but a pigment that is used uh, very significantly, very judiciously, very importantly in all of the work. So those things are laid down with the greatest of respect to the memory of those traditions. So the manilk or the sedge grass is used to apply each rak. The rak is the cross hatching. So it moves this way and moves that way. Successful rak has gabimbe meh. Gabimbe meh is a capacity for something to be brilliant, to shimmer and to jump out at you. This idea is really interesting across the top end. There are lots of different words across the top end for this idea of just nailing it, getting it right. The yungul call it biryan. B-I-R-Y-U-N is how we translate it, biryan. So the yungul from the northeast call it biryan, For the Gunungu, it's Gabimbenme. And as was explained to me just last week or the week before, Gabimbenme is not just about rock. Gabimbenme is what happens when a fish moves quickly in the water and the side of the fish and its scales catch the light. You all know what I mean, yeah? So Gabimbenme is a principle that is an aesthetic principle, a cultural principle that kind of crosses um, beyond the art world in fact the strict idea of an art world is pretty much a made up concept as you would well appreciate and it's something that i think contemporary art does a very good job of opening up or exploding in some ways so the Gabimbemme is brought about by this incredible rak and john mawanjul from the guruk clan sees himself as the master of rak he was learnt rak so we're talking about a gerontocratic society, a society where the old hold power on the whole. This gerontocratic society meant that when Balang was in his late teens and early 20s, he started to learn bark painting by observing, and he was observing his older brother, Jimmy Numa, who we have in our collection, wonderful bark painter, and also his father-in-law, Peter Marawonga, and there's a wonderful Marawonga crocodile up in Gallery 6 at the moment. Marawonga and Nimanuma would paint the outlines for Balang and he would infill with rock, And that was one way of training and developing a technique. Whenever I think about these processes, I actually think about the similarities with the Western art tradition, the apprenticeship model... Just not a tradition that we necessarily see today in great detail, but certainly the similarities with the kind of late medieval renaissance model of working, very similar. Because knowledge is shared, closely protected, like a guild. It's very much like a guild. Certain things are imbued with certain relevance or power and you inherit the capacity to do certain things based on who you are, how you fit in a societal way. For John Mawangul, as the inheritor of the Guruk clan, he became a master of Rak. To become a master of Rak, he watched very carefully and, as I said, developed his rak technique. The Gabin Beme, the Shima, is aided, historically was aided through the use of a binder made from the rare orchid sap found in central and western Arnhem land, so an orchid that grows in the rocky crevices. The sap from that orchid made the binder, which would allow the ochre to move. These days, PVA glue is much more convenient, much easier to come by in large supply. But it's really only PVA that's the only introduced material in the making of these works. So what's going on in terms of memory function? These serve a mnemonic function for an oral culture because they hold that memory, they hold tree memory as barks, as living objects, but they also hold cultural memory, they hold guningu memory. So in the case of the spirit beings or the cosmological beings that we meet, the nyalyod, which is the rainbow serpent the yao the the yao are the often terrifying female figures that have mermaid-like kind of tails, the yao very interesting if you think about almost a universal idea of the Ikanduyong, Carol, Ikanduyong, all the way across to um, the siren, the siren call, etc. So that's the yao kyao. Uh, the Nyalyod, as I said, the namamware the saltwater crocodile. Great example from our collection, just around the corner on the left-hand side, also from 1988. The Mimmi and the Mimmi spirits uh, through here. John Marwanjul, certainly not the most celebrated Mimmi maker. Crusoe Konumbal was probably the most celebrated Uh, But also Balang's sister, Susan Marawar, who was here a week or so ago, she's a very celebrated mimmi maker. These mimmi are uh, figures that hide within the crevices of the western rocky escarpments and occasionally appear before us, teaching us all sorts of things, what to do and what not to do, kind of mischievous on the whole. And then, of course... For Balang, we also have the these incredible spirit beings such as the Namoro Do, and the Namoro do you'll see in the next room on the Western Wall, and the Nawaramulmul and the Namorgon. The Namorgon is the is the is another lightning spirit figure. So if, if we talk if we spoke through, and I am no expert on Gunungu cosmology, important thing to note. If we were to talk through each of these numinous spirit figures, we would find the idea or the memory of place deeply embedded in them because they teach us about place and about seasons, about the climate, about our very environment. So they appear at certain times. The namorodo only appears at dusk. The namargon appears during the wet season when the lightning strikes are particularly prodigious. The ngalyod appears in the wet season when the billabongs are flowing. So there is an incredible... There is both the numinous and the necessary, if that makes sense, that once again coincide. We're learning, remembering, place remember, the exhibition has been curated around these significant significant sites. I'm in Mimilgan, because Mimilgan is John's home. It was in 1993 that he first went, 92, 93, that he first went to Mimilgan. And Mimilgan is very important in his genesis as an artist. He has two homes there. And on our first trip, he took us to Mimilgan. It was the most important place he wanted us to see outside of Managreda and the Art Centre. So we travelled overland west from Manangrida to Mimilgan for about two hours on dirt, rocky kind of roads. And there in Mimilgan is a very important waterhole. It's fed by a spring. It's pre- there are photographs of it in the publication. It's stunning. It's absolutely proliferated with water lilies across the surface. jangirk or these special lights... Often in blue, but also in white, emanate from that waterhole at Mimilgan. And when you see Jung, you know then that the Nyal is not far away. Mimilgan is where John kind of is planning to return. So he'll go back seasonally, and certainly the photos in the publication, all of those are in the houses at Mimilgan. So most of that a lot of that material is Mimilgan. So you are reminded through the way the exhibitions been curated of the mnemonic function of art because for Balang and his family to step into this room is to be reminded of kind of 40 years of Mimilgan. Imagine 40 years across the pages of a National Geographic, for instance, that's depicted a place. Just think of that as a kind of Balander correlative or an equivalent. So that's what we are experiencing here from some of the earliest work. This work over here from the Burnt collection, for instance, this works from around 1988. We don't have a specific date. It's got a circa date on it um, from the Burnt collection. Interestingly, too, because, of course, as part of Ronald and Catherine Burnt's collection that ended up in the WA University, it was also collected ostensibly by anthropologists Although I think the Burns, particularly Catherine, represents a very good example of how anthropology, with regard to Aboriginal art and culture, was always kind of pushing beyond the limits of its own discourse. Catherine had a particularly fine eye for art and for songs, as it happens. She had incredible musical um, capacity. So this work from 1981 across to some of the most recent works, and there are some the nyalyod with the large white delic face. Ryan, what's the date on that nyalyod? Great, so a more recent work. Some of the works appear to be less figurative. It's so tempting to call them abstract, but they're not really, in a Western sense. So between the Yao and the Ngalyod, is the work that is within our collection. And there, with those circular forms, as is there are many circular forms through here, we are introduced to the billabongs at Mimilngan. Those circular forms are absolutely representational, and they are those billabongs. The, I just want to go back to this kind of objecthood theory, this memory idea for a minute. Because I had a great question from one of our gallery guides last week about, this is a good room to see this as well, about the changing presentation of these. One of the techniques in the 19, I'm just going to check, well it would be 80s because it's this work. The 1980s was to strap or to wrap the bark in with the twigs at the top and the bottom. And you'll see that in several instances. And you'll probably notice at a glance that they have a very similar palette, most of these works too. They're from the same time where Balang was working with similar oaks from similar places doing, well, not similar things, but certainly there's a kind of grouping. It's almost almost like there are exhibitions within exhibitions. And in the case of these works... These were This was kind of believed to be the most efficient means of the t- at the time, but it was also preferred in display. Um, and this, this idea of Barks bedeviling art history and conservation is, is really, I'm fascinated by it. They're kind of irascible things. So you can imagine the conservators working on this exhibition with us. They're kind of questions about how you best present these objects... This exhibition opened at the MCA in July. It will travel the country in a much more reduced form, but it will travel the country. And every time these barks move, they will be condition reported. Their status, their health will be fully documented, just like a full kind of medical procedure in many ways. And these barks have been hung with a view to their individuality and extreme botanic kind of nature so that the, the uh, stands, the props, the supports that they sit on have all been created for each of the bark. Each has their own hanging system. Each of these barks has its own crate that's been built for it that is lined with foam and fabric so that the natural form, the memory of the bark is caressed. In its transportation, yeah, it's pretty phenomenal, isn't it? It really is. So, it's it has it, to get to this point feels like a big deal, to be frank, um, because what we're looking at here, as I mentioned, are living beings, beings with botanical memories, um, that all come with very individual stories. And the story of their museum life is just as interesting, from anthropological collections through to the biggest contemporary art collections. And no one, no one, I don't think, I think I can make that call, in the history of bark painting has been a better witness and agent of that shift it's John Marwanjul in many ways who has, you know, help, he, there's a fantastic namargon or lightning spirit figure from the museum's collection just next door. So we've seen everything with Balang from the lightning spirit figure through to major contemporary art commissions. He won the Bach Prize at the Nazis or the Telstra's up in Darwin several times. He, has, he was rejected into the Cologne Art Fair and yet he has been the subject of major contemporary art exhibitions. No one has actually been witness to that, I don't think really, because of the way it's coincided with his life and his practice more than Maunjul. Marwanjul has also travelled extensively. So, for the Magicians of the Earth exhibition, Magicians de la Terre, uh, in the 1980s, he travelled to the Centre Georges Pompidou to see his work there. He was subsequently invited with the agency of curator Hedy Perkins to be involved in the Musée de Quai Branly. He was described by Chirac, French president at the time, as a complete maestro you know, he, you've, you all know this, his face was on the front of the Time magazine with the Eiffel Tower behind him. Interestingly, there was a reference to Papunya on, on the front cover of Time magazine, which is about, in European terms, about 12 countries south <laughs> of Maningrida. But hey, once again, it kind of underscores that Aboriginal art, hasn't it? It's been swept up in this big lasso like it's one thing. And this certainly um, proves that that is not the case. So, each of these works testify and are the memory of those different moments. Moments deeply embedded on country, in Gunungu country, but also moments in the art world. When Mawanjul started to work in so-called more abstract terms, his work really took off in the market. The transposition of rock painting and body painting onto barks, which really began as you can imagine across deep time but Baldwin Spencer as early as 1911 and 1912 it Owen Pelly set up kind of shop and Baldwin Spencer anthropologist would commission artists to make bark works then and he'd kind of give them various instructions in 1948 so you know 35 years later C.P. Mountford does a similar thing with the Asial expedition where he asks artists to depict certain things and we have paintings within our collection that are at the behest, if you like, of the anthropologist or the collector. Mawanjul turns the tables on that because he starts to... Well, he's responding to a market. He's responding to the popularity of his work. The highest price paid for his work, I think, is still the bark, which was a so-called abstract bark within the Colin Elizabeth Laverty collection. That was the highest price he's ever gained. Um, and certainly the way that they... I worked with them on an exhibition of his work some years ago amongst in a con- company of other bark painters, which was really about looking at, afresh at barks that was on the East Coast. But Marwan Jul is someone who has identified, witnessed and been an agent of this transference of power back to barks because barks have trailed some kind of ethnographic glory for much longer than say desert painting has. I mentioned the other day as well that when I was working in the previous collection I had responsibility for the barks there were all um, they were basically stitched but it was a stapling of sorts into a hessian backed case and that's the way they were presented behind glass. So they were kind of museumised from the onset. Does that make sense? It was kind of for their protection or maybe for hours. Maybe there was too much power, I'm not sure, but they were held within these bark boxes. So the story of barks is the story of really the shifting status and reception of Aboriginal art. I think it's... And this exhibition is a prime example of how that's happened. Even the focus on an individual artist, it's rare in Australian art history to see a focus on an individual artist who is Aboriginal. We've certainly... We saw it with Rover Thomas and we saw it with Emily Carmangwara, but there haven't been too many other exceptions or inclusions. And, of course, Emily and Rover just introduced by their first names only, were kind of almost understood, or shall we say misunderstood, to be somehow outside of their culture. The allusions to Emily's work, for instance, to European abstraction were prolific. So they were kind of seen to be somehow working outside of a cultural context, as though they were outsiders, not kind of insiders, which we know is certainly not the case. I'll have a look at my notes and see if there's anything we haven't looked at. Oh, I, in, in doing some, a bit of prep, I pulled up an essay that I'd just love to commend you to. It's, it's about shifting aesthetic principles in Aboriginal art, and it's one that Judith Ryan, long-standing curator of Aboriginal art at the National Gallery of Victoria, wrote, and it's available on their website. And it uses an anthropological term coined by Levi Strauss. It's called The Raw and the Cooked, The Aesthetic Principle in Aboriginal Art. And it's a really easy and really good read. And she actually charts, she talks about barks, but she talks about everything. She just talks about Aboriginal art and its kind of reception and our expectations of Aboriginal art. It's fascinating, good reading. So everything here has a memory. Everything takes on a memory. Our. I mean, I wonder how these barks feel about us. Don't you wish we could ask them? How they feel about their lives, you know, the lives that they have held, the work Yimairud, which is the Gurwiri, which is the rare corphyria palm that's found in Arnhem Land, depicted on the staircase. That bark, that Gurwiri, on that bark painting has travelled from Hanover in Germany to be here. <laughs> it stands on its own because it is just the only bark that belongs to that place and that story, because it's not a site that is significant for... Uh, it's a site that's connected with that plant, so it's not part of Balang's dua responsibilities, which is his moiety, or the, the opposite, opposing Yidditcha responsibilities. The dua and Yidditcha is something you'll come to know a bit more about. We're working already, as you can imagine, on Tarnadhi for next year. And just to give you a little bit of a sense of what's ahead, I think this idea of kinship beyond the human world is something that's uh, timely. You know, I think our sense of uh, empathy in the Anthropocene, not just for each other, but for the planet that we inhabit, is a really good thing to provoke curatorially. So, Nikki and I are working with the Yungu people. So, they're the people I mentioned earlier who are at the northeastern end of Arnhem land who have this idea of Biryan. And the Yungu have this incredibly complex idea that I still can't quite work out, and we probably never will, which is called Gurutu. And Gurutu is the idea of interconnectedness. So, Gurutu includes Dua and Yiricha to the two moieties but it also is a system for understanding everything. So it includes rocks, riverways, waterholes, you name it, animals. Gurutu means that you can work out who someone will be who hasn't been born yet. You can, you can describe, and I saw this in action. So gurutu is a word that's used for the yungu. There'd be a guningu equivalent. When Susan Marawar, John Marwanjil's younger sister, saw this show, she used a word to describe Mbuluwana. Mbuluwana is the ancestral woman who was caught in the drought and died in the drought and is this symbol of difficult times, in a sense, of and of environmental hazard, if you like, or need for care. She's the subject... Don't do it now because you'll all get crooknecks, but she's on the wall that I'm looking straight at right now. Incredible painting of Bulawana. When Susan Marawar stood in front of that painting and saw Bulawana, she used a kinship name to describe Bulawana. Bulawana is an ancient ancestor, but she knew what skin name to call her because she knows how she is related to Bulawana. I have great difficulty working out whether somebody's my great aunt or not. <laughs> I don't know about you. So inherent in, I think, part of our learning is is a, a different way of thinking through some of those kinship and familial connections too. And so next year when we present for Tanandi, among probably about 30 other projects, Gurutu, you will have a chance to work out how you fit within Gurutu. So, Yungu artists are using new media and virtual reality right now up in Yakala to map, to map Gurutu. And I've seen it on their computer screens, and if it looks like anything, it looks a bit like a DNA sequence, you know, when you see all that complex um, mapping of DNA, it looks a little bit like those kind of helixes, double helixes and things. All right. I I reckon I'm good for a couple of questions. What do you think? Do you want? Are you happy to speak loudly enough or do you want the microphone? Uh, yeah, I think I can speak Good, sure. I'm curious to know whether all of the cross actually in, in the show, that the Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, so there, there would have been periods in the late 90s where Kay would have worked a little bit with him. So Kay is his wife. And Kay's also a bark painter. So there could be paintings, particularly from that kind of 90s period, that he, she may have painted some sections, but that would be the exception, and there would be fewer of those. And that's important, because something can't have Jung, it can't have sacred power, unless it's... And it certainly can't have beme, unless it's, you know cohesive, unless it's whole, unless it's one thing. I think Balang would say that if there were collaborations with Kay that they were still part of the one thing. And once again, just to jump into the Western art history books for a minute, I'm yet to meet an old master that didn't have a mistress working with him. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yep. Um, probably by the end of the week, Lovely. next week, next week, Could you repeat the question? Oh, the question, yeah, sure, PJ. The question was just, is the talk being recorded? And Annika, who I must say a massive thanks to from my team, Annika said it will be and it'll be up by the end of the week. And that also gives me pause to thank the amazing Karina Morgan, who we have the great delight of having Karina in-house. We are very lucky. We're probably the only gallery in the country that gets to do Auslan-interpreted talks every single week. Thank you. I think there's one more question, and then I'll let you all go. I the exhibition Great. Yeah, good, good. How do we set about placing the works? I'm going to answer that in two ways, and I'll do it briefly because I know you're running out of time. But the first way that we did it was by talking to John Mawanjul. So the exhibition has been a collaboration with the MCA and Man Art and Culture with Balang in the centre of that story. So on the video, you'll see that there are lots of bits of paper and in the book as well, we essentially went through the whole archive of everything that we could find. We found 700 works by John Marwanjul. We think there are 1,100 out there, but we found about 700. And we took printouts of all of those 700 works to Maningrida and And we sat down over a number of occasions and talked to Balang about the works... That's with the selection of the work. Then we moved into a discussion about the placement of the work. Now, most monographs, the writing of one, has privileged chronology or time-based approach or a thematic approach. We decided to do neither of those things. We decided instead to focus on this idea of each of these gunrad, these special places. So Balang said, rather than approach it this way or this way, my life and my life's work is actually about each of these places that my family and I travel to and visit, places that are important. Some of those places are his. He, as a jungai, as a spiritual leader, has responsibility for some of those places. They're the dua moiety places, but some of those places are not his. And whenever you read the wall text, you'll, he'll, he'll tell you so the, all the wall text is first person. It's all written by Balang, and he'll say, "This is a Dua this is a moiti uh, place, or a yirritcher. This is my wife's place. She's yeda uh, Sorry, moiti. So um, that's how we decided on that. And then I'm going to take your question in, in another way to mean how did you physically do it? These works can only be moved into place once. So sometimes when you're hanging painting. As a curator, you get to have a bit of fun and you put the work there and you think, how does that look? Oh, no, it would look better over there. None of that here. We made a template the exact size of all 160 works, physically, exact size, because you'll know that there are no straight edges. Well, there are straight edges, but there are no right angles, yeah? And we mocked up and and taped up those before we hung the works so these are placed once and once only. And Nikki did all of this. I say we like I was in the room. It was mostly Nikki, let me tell you. I was trying to run the building at the time. But the 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 placement, this idea of the kind of memory in the body of the form is a really interesting thing when you're hanging. Because normally you might hang off a the top line or a center line and but, but these works almost each required their own moment of working out how to be hung because, as you can see, and there you know, you wouldn't the temptation might be to hang this work in a way that's parallel with the floor or the ceiling. PJ, yeah. Yeah, don't worry, don't worry, that's my job. <laughs> um, this this is great, it's actually from the Proust collection, so Amy Proust had the opportunity to commission a whole lot of work by John Marwanjo, <clears throat> they've got about 12 of them, so that should make you worry less for a start. But um, this is just, a, this is probably, this could be a lot, number of things, and without being a tree surgeon. It's hard to know. It could be that it wasn't smoked for long enough. It wasn't held down. It could also be, it was painted in 1993. So what's that? It's 25 years old. Is that right? Yep. It. I don't know where it's been for the last 25 years. That is how it's been hanging. You can imagine that they are almost sponges for humidity. So I it's, it's a really compelling that's why the condition checking we do is so important, knowing the condition it's in when it comes in because you could make an assumption through reproduction and that's, I think that's the revelation of this show, that's what people keep saying to me, they can't believe it, they thought they knew what bark painting was and then they're like oh my god, they're like objects, they're like things they hover, they have an energy, they're not just kind of flat things on the wall so don't worry about it PJ don't lose any more sleep over that work